Hey guys, this is Ishai Breslauer and welcome to the CRE Shark Eye Show where we discuss commercial real estate. On Mondays, we dive deep into an asset class and on Thursdays, we go into some inspirational stories for the weekend. Can't wait to start. Let's go. Hey guys, before we start, I just want to point out the six best secrets for commercial real estate. It's a free download. Go to the text side and you will find it. It has absolutely great information, completely free, how to become a landlord, how to determine the value of a property, or creative financing for commercial real estate. All of it is completely free. Go download it. Also, I want to point out my CRE crash course. It's a two-week must-have program with a must-have skills for commercial real estate, like investment strategies, the must-have financial terms, how a deal is done, Go take a look at it, go to the text side and click on the link. And now let's continue with our program. Hey guys, how are you? This is Ishai Bressler, your host, the CRE Shark Eye Show. I hope you guys are doing fantastic today. We have Suja Sham. She's the managing principal of Lux Capital Investment Group, and they deal with so many asset classes, funds of funds, which is a topic that we haven't spoken about yet, and I'm so excited about this whole topic. Not only that, but she's also dealing with, she has an experience with Airbnb, which we're going to hear so much about it today. Suja, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Ishai, for being here. And it's really great to um, get to talk to your listeners today. Thank you. I'll tell you what, before we dwell into this whole thing, which I'm so excited about, give us the two minute elevator pitch of what you guys really do. Absolutely. So, uh, I'm the managing principal of Lux Capital Investment Group, and at Lux Capital, our goal is to uh, serve our investors. So we raise capital from investors, and we place that capital. And so our goal is to provide our investors with a diverse offering of um, investment opportunities across asset classes, geographies, and sponsors. So we really see ourselves as vetting deals in many different asset classes, in many different operators and really finding the best deal so that you or whoever is interested in investing don't have to do that work on their own. You know, like you don't have to, if, if I was a sponsor, then I would, you know, pretty much, I mean, not that I wouldn't recommend other sponsors to you, but the only deals I would be bringing to you on a regular basis were my own. So my goal is to help people create a diverse set of offerings in the private placement world. And we focus specifically on recession resistant asset classes. Which is extremely exciting, extremely exciting because that requires an expertise of vetting different, different type of things, especially the sponsors. We're going to really dwell into that. But you know what? Um, let's, let's go back a little bit. You know, let's take the time machine and uh, the DeLorean and ride all the way back and ask you, how did you get into this whole thing? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Uh, great question. So I figured out that I was interested in real estate uh, while I was doing my MBA. And I basically had done some work in community development and I really decided that I was also interested in business. And so I felt like real estate was a, a wonderful intersection of community development, urban design, and, um, and, and, and actually business. So I loved the idea of getting into real estate, but then the question is, how do I get into real estate? Because it's a very diverse field, right? And so um, 
I ended up actually starting out as an underwriter of multifamily affordable apartment buildings. And the reason I started out there was because I was told that it was really good real estate training to be an underwriter. So that's what I did at first. It turns out that I did not have entrepreneurial mentors in that space because I was essentially working for financial institutions, in other words, banks. And so I was working for banks and pretty much everybody in the bank was mostly interested in continuing to work for financial institutions rather than being an entrepreneur and building their own portfolio. So I didn't really find the mentors that I needed. And long story short, I mean, there's a whole story about how I ended up leaving that corporate world and taking 18 months to travel around the world. And then I became decided I you know, needed to revisit becoming an entrepreneur. You know, let's pause for a second. This is a cool yeah. story. Tell us about that. <laughs> How did that uh, come about? You left yeah. this thing. And I, I'll tell you something. I, I also worked for a financial institution. Uh, I was the only guy who was not an accountant. And I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. And uh, I wanted to do deals and I wanted to go forward. And they were interested in giving service, great service. But the one thing that is great about those institutions is that it's great school for finance, knowing the numbers, crunching the numbers, understand underwritings, understand what the banks need, understand what everybody needs, all the players. So that's a great school, but you left it and you just said you went to travel the world. That's the coolest story. <laughs> Tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, I wouldn't have normally been able to leave the comfort of that job because it was, a, you know, in many respects, a cushy job, although it was demanding and stressful. So, but it was very cushy as well. And, you know, it was also, there was a ceiling on it, but in any case, what happened was I had a series of events that happened within 10 days that kind of pulled the rug out from under me in my whole life. So our company went through a merger, which was positive, except that it, after a year, it kind of fell apart and that would have had to move across the country to stay with the company. So it was essentially like a failed merger. And you are where? What's that? And you are based in? I'm based in Portland, Oregon. And so the company that bought us was mostly like based on the East Coast. And there was basically a disagreement or, you know, essentially my bosses just didn't, they weren't really like interested in working for that company. So they left. And then when they left, then the new parent company just decided to close our office. So I would have had to move to stay with the company. Didn't want to do that. And I also was in a relationship that ended and I was also in an accident and all those things wow. happened within 10 days. Wow. Um, and it was, yeah, it was probably the most uh, biggest shakeup in my life that I've ever had. Uh, and I actually am so grateful for that time because it was incredibly difficult. It was like literally everything that I spent my time on, which was, you know, my relationship, my job and my activities, which were all mostly physical, like dance and acrobatics and things of that nature. So I couldn't, I really had nothing to do. It was just me alone in my house. Well, I wasn't totally alone. I had roommates, but I had cats and I just didn't have anything to do. Like whatever I had, I was so busy before. And then all of a sudden I had nothing. So it, it was the best invitation though. That's what I ended up calling it was an invitation from the universe to actually change my life, you know? And it was just like the, it was like a blank slate. Like I literally had a blank slate. So I thankfully had some good friends because I had other opportunities in that underwriting field. Like I was already having offers and I 
I was still kind of talking to people in the field, I could have taken another underwriting job. But deep down, I knew that I didn't really want to be an underwriter. Still, you know, the golden handcuffs, they're very alluring. And that security of having a large check come in every two weeks is hard to leave. So I'm very grateful to my friends because my friends, you know, I I told them I was going to travel for a month, maybe two before starting another job. And then I had a friend tell me, you know, just think about a hundred days. And I tell you, Ishai, as soon as she said that, it was like my mind was freed because there's no way I could have put off starting that new job for three months like that. What, what do you mean about a hundred days? A hundred days of- She was thinking about, just think about traveling for a hundred days. Cause I had said, I'll be gone for a month, you know, or something like that. Like I'm going to take a month off. And then she said, just think about a hundred days, like a, a trip, you know, um, like going and leaving on an international journey for a hundred days. That's amazing. And you know what? <laughs> Let me ask you this. This is something a lot of people dream about, but not a lot of people can do it for many aspects, family issues. I don't know what, uh, traveling from, you know, a country to country or whatever it is and finance, you know, financial, of course, not a lot of people can, can afford, you know, let alone meaning pay for all those trips, obviously to have the, you know, to be able to live because you don't have that income anymore. So how did you manage to do all that and to be able to actually execute with, uh, with that uh, beautiful idea? Yeah. You know, that's a great question. And there are a lot of reasons why I was able to do it. So first of all, I, I didn't have children at the time, so I didn't have to really plan for that. Although it, I did check out a lot of books from the library and there were definitely, there definitely are families that do it. So the key is you have to get smart with your money. And I was already house hacking at the time. So when I bought my single family house, I knew that I didn't want, like my dad had always told me that a house is a liability before it's an asset. And so I knew that I didn't want to buy a house that was too much where the mortgage payment was going to be too high. And not only that, I actually, I, at the first I had roommates when I purchased my house and um, I was able to actually have my house cash flowing as soon as I bought it. And so all I did when I left to travel, as far as my mortgage was, I simply rented out my room and moved my things down to the basement. And it was really pretty easy. And it was the house was still cash flowing. On top of that, because I had purchased the house about a year prior and I didn't have any mortgage payments and I had a high paying finance job, I was saving that whole year. I mean, yes, I was spending some money on house projects and this and that, but I, I had quite a bit of money just saved and I hadn't really learned how to invest yet. And so, yes, I was putting lots of money away in my 401k, but I just had quite a bit of savings. So that was number one. Um, the number two, yeah, definitely. So my, it's, I was easy to leave my, you know, house behind and I didn't know I was going to be gone for 18 months. I was like, I'll be gone from seven to 24 months. That's what I told myself. <laughs> Where'd you go? Where'd you go? What'd you do? Um, Where'd you go? Yeah, totally. Well, before, before I talk about that, I just want to say, you know, the way to travel is to be very, you know, you can do low cost travel if you take the right strategy. So there's different organisms. And I didn't do this the whole time, but I took the approach of living in communities, doing work trade. So there's, 
you know, the, the original one was woofing, willing workers on organic farm. Now there's other ones like help X and work away. And, you know, if you mix those in like a week or even two week long stay in between, you know, whatever other travels you want to do. I also did couch surfing back then. And it was a really wonderful way to not only meet people because sometimes when you're just staying in hostels, you're only meeting other travelers. But when you do workaways and when you're doing couch surfing, um, you can actually live with people who are local. And so it's a wonderful way to experience travel. And I, I didn't start out that way. So, okay. I started out doing more touristy stuff. The thing is, is that that actually starts to get old. It all starts to feel the same. Even if you're in across the world, doing a guided tour in Thailand is totally, it ends up feeling the same as doing a guided tour in Argentina because you're with these international people and you know, you're, I don't know. I mean, it can still be fun, but it just, after a while, you, it might be hard to imagine. It all starts to feel the same. So where did I go? I went, I started out in South America and the first bit of my travel, I wasn't being quite as, um, you know, I would say frugal with my cash. So I was doing a lot of touristy stuff. I was visiting friends and I was flying around a lot. So I flew to Argentina and Chile, Bolivia, El Salvador, Nicaragua. I went to Thailand, Cambodia. Wow. I actually went to Israel. Oh yeah? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I had an amazing time in Israel, Portugal, Iceland. And then I went back to the United Which States. Which year was that by the way? 2014, I was in Israel. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. And then I, and then, so that I, my kind of burned through quite a bit of cash doing that. And so then I decided, okay, well, I'm not ready. I don't know what I want to do next. And so I decided I have to figure out, you know, something else. So I'm going to start to do the slow travel thing where I'm doing more workaways and more, you know, and I ended up going back to Argentina and just staying there for the whole time. And that was wonderful because, you know, the whole slow travel thing is totally different than just like kind of, you know, moving from place to place, which is fun too. There's nothing wrong with that. Tell me something. What's your takeaway from all this traveling? Meaning you're coming back today, obviously you have a lot of thoughts about it, but <laughs> at that time, at that point where you, you know, if you finished all the back and forth, you came back. What was your takeaway then? What did you learn? Well, I mean, from it? yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question because the reason that I came back is actually also kind of important, right? Like when I was traveling, I'll just back up to that. What was my main takeaway? My main takeaway when I was traveling was I was just so grateful to not have to be beholden to a nine to five, eight to six plus weekends job. You know what I Freedom. mean? Freedom. Like, yes. I was just like so grateful to not have to be stuck in a cubicle. I was grateful to be able to follow my every whim. I was grateful to be able to meet people from around the world. I was grateful to not have, to, I was just like, for me, the grind just really didn't work. Like the, the work, the nine to five. I know there's people who lots of people it works well for once you have children, it's really nice to have that steady paycheck. And so nothing to knock it. But for me, it was just sucking my soul dry, you know? And I think a lot of people can relate to that. It's just like, yeah. I was just like, I did not want to go to the same office for the next 30 years. And I know that people move jobs and whatnot, but when I looked at my superiors as wonderful people as they were, 
it just wasn't the life that I wanted to live. You know, I was like, I don't want to stay at this company for 15 years. I don't want to stay in this industry. It's just not, it's not inspiring to me. I'm more of a deal maker entrepreneur and I needed to figure that out. So I was just so grateful to not have to be in a grind. And then what happened though, was I was starting to kind of run low on my money and I hadn't really figured out how to make ends meet while traveling. I know there are people who are like doing something while traveling, like digital nomads and whatnot. And I was starting to figure that out, but then I had a reckoning moment. And basically my sister brought that to me. I didn't really realize it at the time, but basically I told her that I wasn't going to be able to make it to her medical school graduation. And apparently this was pretty upsetting to her because she stopped communicating with me for a period of time. (laughs) Um, And, you know, so that really caused me to think hard about what it was that I was doing. I basically didn't want to fly back to the United States because that would cost like, you know, a few thousand dollars all said and done. And I just didn't want to spend the money because I was like, I, I felt like it was either my happiness or going back for her graduation. And so I had to ask myself, Ishai, well, what do I really want? Like I, on one hand, I think it's reasonable for me to be expected to go back to this graduation. But on the other hand, like I, I do not want to go back to that life I had where I was like, you know, I didn't, I just didn't want that. So actually from a hostel in Argentina, I just had this like light bulb moment and the words passive income popped into my mind. And so I Googled passive income from a hostel in Argentina. And I realized that there are all these people who were building passive income. Interestingly enough, I didn't immediately find the real estate people, even though I already had been house hacking and I was an underwriter of multifamily assets. I didn't really see how that was going to grow quickly. And so, and I also just, I had some limiting beliefs, right? Like, you know, we talk in entrepreneurship about limiting beliefs. And so, but anyways, point is I found passive income and I found all these entrepreneurs developing passive income, not in real estate. And I was like, that's what I need. I need passive income. And so that kind of set me on this path. Like it was like, immediately I was like, oh, I need to do this. And I just, it was, became my mission was to figure out how I could have passive income so that I wouldn't have to go to a job every day. <laughs> um, and again, there's nothing wrong with the companies that I worked for or my coworkers, like they were wonderful people and the companies were good companies and I had a great job and, you know, I'm really grateful for those experiences, but it just wasn't what I wanted for the rest of my life. So um, yes, my big takeaway when I came back was that the last thing I want to do is go back to a job. There was like one job that I considered going back to, which was being a development associate. But, you know, I just, I didn't quite, once I found this passive income thing, I decided I was going to pursue that. Tell you something. This is an exciting story. And this is a great lesson. Look at you. You're, you're an underwriter, a person who understands NOI, who understands cap rates, who understands the performa, ins and outs. Um, debt service, you know, that every line that you had to actually look at and you understood things that people are trying to understand and learn. And yet you were not with that passive income perspective. It just, it just shows us that you need both. You need the know-how and you need, you know, you need the psyche. You need, you need to really, you need to know uh, that the entrepreneurial trait of it. And uh, you know what? It's an amazing thing because you worked for a financial institution that takes care of services. If you would have worked, I believe that, 
I believe that strongly because I had people who worked for, uh, with me, for me. Uh, and um, everyone who works in an entrepreneurial company in, in a, is a, either a real estate developer or an operator or a private equity firm, they get, they are forced, they are educated immediately, even though they came from a finance institution that they have to actually, you know, right now take care of the company and make sure that the company has actual, you know, profit from the passive income that we call, you know, from uh, that they have positive NOI and all that stuff. So that, that's an amazing thing. I never thought about it that way, but this is an incredible thing. Thank you so much for that. Um, tell me something. Okay, you went and you, you figured that out. And then all of a sudden came this whole idea of Airbnb, right? This, this, well, well this, it wasn't this all next... of a sudden. Okay. Yes. It was, you know, like I said, I had limiting beliefs about real estate. So instead I did some entrepreneurship trainings and whatnot. I decided I was going to be a digital marketing consultant. And I just, that's an amazing field, right? And it was a growing field. It's still a very, you know, very, it's still a thriving field. Every business needs to understand it. But basically it wasn't for me, right? Like, and I, but I had to kind of go through some hard lessons. Like I was still spending too much time behind a computer and that's just not what I wanted, right? Like I left, was traveling the world for 18 months. I didn't want to be spending so much time behind a computer. I just wasn't into it. And so, but during that time I was living back in my house and I had actually had a tenant move out. And this is, this is a multi, there's a, a couple lessons here. So the first thing is when I was left to go travel, my house was a five bedroom house and I had four roommates. I was just like too many people living in the house. And um, that was one reason I didn't want to come back to is I just didn't know how to deal with this like asset that I had, like it was cash flowing, but it wasn't really where I wanted to live. So then um, when I came back, actually my manager had rented out the basement unit to a woman who just wanted to stay downstairs and never wanted to use the upstairs. She wanted her own apartment and it didn't have a kitchen or a kitchenette, but she used the bathroom sink. She was a chef at a great restaurant. So she didn't really need to eat. She didn't really want to cook at home. And so she was just like living downstairs with a hot plate. And it just dawned on me. I'm like, Oh, there's like an apartment in my house. So I don't actually have to rent out my whole house and everybody share the kitchen and the living room, et cetera. It's an apartment. It's a self-contained apartment. And so then one day she moved. So that was the first light bulb moment that like, I didn't actually have to just share the whole house with roommates. Then the second light bulb moment was when she moved out. I didn't actually want to find another basement tenant because I feel like in Portland, you know, it's kind of dark a lot of times in the year and we didn't have any, you know, there, the, it was a little bit dark down there. It, it's, it's not as much now because we added more windows and whatnot, but um, I just didn't want to find another basement tenant because I just felt like, as like basement dwellers and Portland, like, I don't know, it just, I didn't want to do it. So what I did Safety. was like, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it was just more of a vibe thing, right? Like it was more like the vibe was just, I just wanted a different vibe. So what I did was I threw it on Airbnb and I literally just put an air mattress down there and like some random furniture that was just like nothing nice, but immediately it was renting out for three times more than I was getting as a long-term rental. And to me at that time, like, you got to think like I was living on $10 a day, like while I was traveling and I was living extremely frugally. And so all of a sudden I'm getting three times the amount of rent. Like that was like real money to me back then. And it was just like this light bulb moment that like, oh my gosh, like with Airbnb, I can make so much more money 
and then the person also doesn't necessarily live there and like park there and have all their stuff there. And I just, it was a side hustle for me though, at the time, it was just a stopgap measure for me to build my digital marketing career. But over time, I realized that like Airbnb was steady cash flow. It wasn't like feast or famine, like um, consulting. And it was also, I could make it better. Like Airbnb does a great job of teaching you to be a good host with the reviews and this and that. And so like, I slowly was incentivized to become a really good, you know, five-star host. And so I would um, improve the place slowly, like literally little by little, I made it nicer. And then it was just so great that I wanted another one. So I was like brainstorming, how do I get another Airbnb unit? And what I realized is that my house, like I had a master bedroom, like, oh, people could live and do rent out the master bedroom and I could move to a different room. And so, and, you know, my partner helped me, he's a general contractor. So he helped me add bathrooms and kitchenettes. And so essentially then the next iteration was that the guests entered the master bedroom through the back doors and they had their own bathroom and their own kitchenette. And so then I had a three bedroom house. And so then I was only sharing the house with two other people, which was really, really nice. And now it's just me and my partner in the three bedroom house. And then at the same time, I was like, I want another one. And so I was also converting the garage to a cottage. And so now, and I mean, you'd be surprised. It's like really quiet and we all have, you know, there's a backyard, there's a front yard, there's side yards and it's, we really don't get in each other's way. And so now I literally have three rentable spaces on my single family property and it makes it cash flows really, really well. So in terms of like actually building cash flow, Airbnb was way, it's just very fast. It's an incredible story. Incredible, incredible story. And that leads us obviously to what you do today. If you could, <laughs> you know, take us through the whole private equity concept, which, you, you know, a lot of people are familiar yeah. with. Absolutely. Uh, how'd you get to that point? For sure. So you know, after I had developed my single family property, I still wanted some more Airbnbs. It was like 2018 and the economy was still bumping. And so I, I decided I ended up finding a fourplex and that was, I could, it was in a commercial zone so I could convert it to a hotel. And so that was my next project. And between the three units and the hotel, I then was replacing my corporate income. And so that was awesome. It was like, an amazing accomplishment to replace my, my corporate income within three years. Um, and then I, at the same time, I was like, okay, I know that hospitality is not a recession resistant asset class. I need to be diversifying because literally all my money comes from Airbnb and other short-term rental platforms right now. So I knew that I needed to diversify. So I was looking for the next step in real estate and, you know, I was listening to the bigger pockets and all these, you know, different things. And I realized that I didn't want to do, you know, whole family, single family rentals. Like I wanted to do the next level thing. Like I knew that like, you know, I was a multifamily underwriter. There's people who are doing this stuff. I need to figure out how to do that. But it took a while to figure out who exactly to follow. And so I eventually found um, Hunter Thompson's Cashflow Connections podcast. Somebody recommended it to me at an event that I went to. And I was just like, okay, this is the philosophy that makes sense to me. It's a, a very strong focus on downside protection. He was also, you know, a very strong focus on recession resistant asset classes, a very strong focus on due diligence. His content was very high level. And it was like, I felt 
you know, like this is what I was looking for. I was looking for this type of approach to real estate investing. I wasn't looking for the shiny, you know, oh, you're going to make so much money on your investment or whatever. Like I wanted a lot of rigorous um, analysis and very thoughtful, um, you know, due diligence because that's the background that I come from. I come from bank due diligence process takes several months, you know? So, um, so that's how I decided I eventually kind of found my way to that space and decided, okay, well, it's a lot of work to do. You know, it's like basically several different business lines operating, being a syndicator, you know, you've got to do acquisitions, which means you've got to have really good relationships with brokers. It's, you've got to, you know, make sure you're executing the business plan, which means you've got to have all these relationships with contractors and property management and asset management. And then you've got to have your capital stack all lined up. So you have to have like enough people or guarantors or whatever to like get your capital stack together. And also you have to have the investors and then you got to dispose of the asset and, you know, do it all over again. And I had had tried to have a business partner at one point and we just ended up having very different visions. And so it didn't work out. And so I was like very hesitant to bring on another business partner. And so I decided, well, I don't want to do all six jobs at once. Like the whole point of me doing this is to not have a job, you know? So, I mean, so I was like, how do I do this, but just have one job. And so I decided to focus on the vetting of deals and the capital raising, because, you know, I figured that if I build an investor base, it's just going to be valuable no matter what. Number two, I have a strong focus already on vetting deals and um, like, you know, I already know how to do due diligence and. And you have the background, of course. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I have the background. And so I decided I would focus on, raising capital and vetting deals, because I also wanted to put my money into, you know, I was doing this work anyways, because I wanted to invest the money, the profits from my Airbnb business into passive investments. And so that's how I ended up in doing this. And now I've become very passionate about closing the investing gap because there's actually, you know, a lot of people hear about the wage gap and that is very important. We need, we need to close that. But more important than that, in my opinion, is that we need to close the investing gap because the investing gap compounds the wage gap even more. Like if we still had the wage gap, but we didn't have the investing gap, then the gap between, um, you know, women and men, people of color, white people would be less than if it was. So I just, I really think it's so important to help people learn how to put their money to work and how to create a diversified portfolio. I'm just very passionate about it. So that's kind of what it's evolved into. It's beautiful. You know, something um, getting into this whole aspect, and we spoke about this before we started the, uh, you know, this interview. I want to understand because you wanted to go for the concept of fund of funds, meaning private equity could definitely be a deal per deal type of a thing, right? And you are a fund of funds. Explain for those who, who don't really understand what it is, if you could please elaborate on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, you know, one of my main concerns was making sure that when I was doing this, that we were doing it um, legally. And so there were a lot of different things happening when I got into the space and I settled on the fund of funds model to be able to um, very... Uh, do this in a very clear cut and way. And so basically what we do is we take gather investor capital and then we put it into a special purpose vehicle. And then that special purpose vehicle invests um, in a particular deal or a particular portfolio. And so we call SPV. Yeah. Yes. And so 
sometimes when we're writing a large check, like, um, you know, 500, a million, 2 million, et cetera, um, or more, we can negotiate with the sponsor to get preferential treatment. And so that's one way that we get compensated is we basically take the difference um, between what we're given because we're writing a large check and, um, you know, because for the sponsor, it's nice to not have to have so many, like to get a large check instead of get 10 small checks. So well, um, I'm sorry, I'm stopping you, but you know what? The difference is, it sounds to me more like a classic LP. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds to me like classic LP basically find sponsors, vet the sponsors, vet their deals, um, and then go and join them as an LP, which SPV uh, is usually called when we go into the startup nation type of uh, investment, less the real estate. Real estate call it LPs. Um, but the funds of funds, from what I understand, and tell me if, uh, if this is also a strategy of yours, is to actually invest in funds, in private equity funds, that they go and vet you know, sponsors. Meaning, let's say you have a guy who does only certain type of private equity investments with multifamily, certain types, certain asset class, certain location, et cetera. And then you have a guy who does retail, whatever. And then you invest with that person and with that person, with that person, and they are not sponsors. Is that a part of your strategy or no? You invest straight with the sponsors. So currently we're investing directly with the sponsors rather than in funds. Although, I mean, people use the word fund and they kind of toss it around. Um, and That's true. It, it means different things to different people. Like, you know, for example, we're investing in this 18 unit portfolio and I heard someone say, what's the benefit of investing in a fund? Like, like that's what they, they call the portfolio a fund. I wouldn't necessarily have called it a fund because it's one deal, but you know, whatever. It's just, it's, it, it's what exactly. No, is- I, I understand the concept. Tell, tell yeah. me something. This leads me to, to a very, very good question because you became an expert of vetting, meaning you knew vetting deals, but vetting sponsors as a fund is a whole different ballgame. It's easier because you don't have to, in one hand, deal with every deal, like find the deals, deal with them, acquire them, sign the loan, do things that are really hard, and then actually manage the, the construction or manage the property, manage the asset, whatever level you're managing. It, it's not easy. However, on the level of a private equity, which you are, you have to really know how to, how to vet the sponsor vet the general partner, the person who, who's the hunter, the guy who writes the deal. It's a whole different ex- expertise. You want to talk about that a, a little bit? How you find them, how you vet them, what's important to you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say the first thing is that it's not um, cut and dry. It takes time to build these relationships with sponsors. I'm very selective. And I want to have a relation. If I'm going to be bringing capital to a deal, I need to have a good relationship with the sponsor. And I need to feel like this is a sponsor that's going, that I can have some access to, and that I'm going to be able to get, perform my own due diligence. So, I mean, you know, building trust is, it's not a straight line process. It kind of builds over time and you, you know, it's, it's, it's networking. It's um, asking questions. Of course, you know, you have to be respectful of people's time. They're busy people, but 
one way to do that is to, I can put money into a deal to show that I'm committed to them. And then after that, I can, you know, maybe ask for a little bit more of their time and then just see how they respond. Like some people are not necessarily willing to treat me like in the same way that they would treat a bank. So for example, with a bank, you know, you have to give them all the, you have to give them everything, right? Like for your lender, you have to give them your personal financial statements and all this other stuff, right? So not everybody's willing to give that to me. And that's something that I'm not really, you know, I want to make sure that I can get the information that I need because it's important to me to know who is backing this deal. And when, you know, if there is push come to shove moment, does the sponsor have the ability to carry the deal? What does their financial statement look like? So just, that's like one example of something that, you know, is important for me to know. And so not everyone's willing to do that. And so that's probably not a good fit for me to invest with them. Um, so in any case, I, I am vetting a sponsor or something. Also, it's a, it's a gut check. It's seeing how they respond to your questions. You know, I mean, I've definitely had people who I felt like were rude to me yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, I can never invest with you now that, you know, that conversation just happened. So I'm like, that's just a closed door. Right. So yeah. it's like, I'm bringing money to the table. I need to be able to ask these questions, you know? So, um, yeah. And I mean, obviously, you know, it's a give and take. Right. And so, um, but yeah, vetting a sponsor is something that I take, you know, it's the most important part of the deal. You got to know also how conservative their unwriting is. So make having a very close relationship with their underwriter and people who are preparing the analyses and making sure that I understand exactly how they arrived at pretty much every single assumption. Like, you know, not just, not just going through the T12 myself, but actually talk to them about, well, where did you get this number? Where did you get this number? So that I can understand, know their process of absolutely deals. And then not everybody is going to take the time to do that for you. And a lot of people aren't going to take the time, you know, for a sponsor, they don't necessarily want to have to do that for every $50,000 investor. So for me, I'm able to conduct that high level of due diligence so that people, and then people, you know, can rely on my work. You know something, this is so real and so interesting um, because when you vet a sponsor, you just said, you know what, if there's a breaker, if, if we can't get along, if, if I asked you a question that got you offended and people say, okay, why? He sounds good. He sounds like a guy who has the track record and so on. The one thing that people don't understand, uh, we're not talking about a sale. You're not buying a dress or a jeans or I don't know what. You're not buying a, a, a you know, a phone. <laughs> this is, yeah. yeah, this is a long-term this is marriage because mm -hmm. the second you invest with that person, you're going to be in touch for whether it's a three-year process, you know, whether it's a three-year hold in the property, sometimes five, seven, sometimes 10 year old. So it means, and, and it's probably not the first you want to, you know, reinvest with that person because it's, it's really hard to find other sponsors and other sponsors. And sometimes you fall on someone really good. You want to keep on investing with that person for at least few properties. Obviously you want to diversify eventually, but people don't understand. You need to build that relationship. And once something bad is happening in day one, what will happening? What, what's going to happen when things, you know, when it hits the fan and things mm -hmm. are not going so well. And many times it does happen. So mm -hmm. you want to really get along in the beginning. So that's, that's a great tip. I like that. That's a great tip. Um, 
Suja, anything else you want to share with us, you know, on your strategies uh, to tell the people of um, how you can help them in terms of investments before we say our goodbyes, which is, uh, I think this was a great interview. So please do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it was just really a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much. And I want to give listeners a way to listen to my show too, which is called Passive Income Unlocked. It's a podcast and we've had Ishai as a guest and many, many more people. It's a daily yeah. podcast. <laughs> Please and you guys can ch check out the links above below. Yes. Uh, my firm is called Lux Capital Investment Group. And again, you know, our goal is to offer our investors a diversified set of offerings across asset classes, geographies, and sponsors. And, you know, we're very selective with who we work with does not happen, you know, quickly. And because downside protection is a huge part of what we're focused on and also looking at diversification amongst asset classes, right? So that yeah, is- You, you know what, share with us a little bit, just very quickly, what type of asset class do you guys- Oh yeah, uh, sorry, I haven't even at. mentioned that. So yes, yes, I, this is important, this is important. Guys, listen, listen, go ahead. <laughs> when I say recession resistant asset classes, for me, what I'm talking about are multifamily does fall into that. Also self-storage, senior living, we're doing ATMs, mobile home parks, and industrial. And so those are the asset classes that I'm focused on. Interesting. And um, really, yeah, find them to be attractive from a downside protection standpoint. This was beautiful. Suja, thank you so, so much. Really appreciate it. And yeah. uh, you guys check out all the links, check out Suja and our company. And, uh, <laughs> You guys, if you want to learn about investments, you want to understand how to invest, how to become a really smart passive investor, uh, Suja is really a great source for that. Suja, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ishai. Really great to see you. Have a great no, day. No problem. You guys, I'll see you in the next show. Hey, guys, thanks for joining me in this CRE Shark Eye Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And... Go subscribe, download, do whatever you guys need to do. And I'll see you in the next episode. Take care of yourselves.